out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the VIPs, a UK power pop group who were around in the late 70s and early 80s, because I spoke to Jed Mahofsky very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff that happens. And also, just a sort of a word up about the VIPs, there is going to be a compilation coming out on Optic Nerve Records this coming autumn, September, so do check that out, Optic Nerve They are stunning, all the way from Preston. So anyway, look, after some casual chat that is the world of showbiz, we got down to the exciting um, conversation of one of their early videos, very early, um, titled uh, Causing Complications. And um, yes, I mentioned this to Jed and he replied and this was it. Jed, it's over to you. What, the Causing Complications? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we made that at Warwick, at Warwick University. A friend of ours, Nick Morris, was part of the film studies group, and um, that's his project. And we just we just got properly together as a band. And I've, I'm always writing songs, and fortunately, we had you know we had the material, and he he wanted to do it, and we had a real good time doing that. And it's 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 lasted it's lasted thanks to see YouTube and everything else. Well, I know, and it's great because it's had over, you know, nearly sixteen thousand views. So it's uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's really handy, you know. Whoever Andrew Price is, oh, Andrew's in the band, isn't he? Yeah, he's the bass player. I spoke to him last night, actually. Yeah, so I just realised that's his. He, that was he. He's the one who's put it up, actually. No, it was great. And I was thinking, God, seventy nine, seventy eight, seventy nine. I mean, there weren't a lot of videos at that stage, were there? Sorry, I said in seventy eight, seventy nine, there hadn't been a lot of videos made of uh, no. Um, so um, I think Bohemian Rhapsody, and then there was a few others that had sort of been cobbled together. But um, yeah, it's interesting, and you know, even a bit in the swim. The sw- you almost told a story as well, didn't you, with the swimming pool? <laughs> well, well, we were swimming in the water and we were splashing in the pool. Yes, I before before you know, coming to Warwick in seventy seven. I got there in October 77. I'd been listening to loads of um, Elvis Presley apart from apart from Bolan and, and other stuff. And uh, and that kind of ah-ha-ha uh-huh, and uh, the, the kind of jolly, light-hearted lyrics seemed to, to go well with that tune. Yes. And, and yeah, it, 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 um, it wrote itself, that song, really. Yeah. I was, yeah, it was funny. The woman in the swim pool as well. Yeah. It was of its time. You couldn't make it now, could you, really? It would all have to be stopped. It would have to be edited out somehow. I don't know. It's, you know, it was kind of in the 70s, it was much more, you know, I remember, I don't know if you can remember, but bands used to, when they said, why are you in a band? They used to say the three magic words, didn't they? It was like, well, it's sex, drugs and rock and roll, wasn't it? And um, I think, I think decade. I don't know when they stopped saying it, but there was definitely, I suddenly one, remembered one day thinking, God, you don't hear that phrase anymore, do you? But I remember sort of on the old Grey Whistle test, people used to just blaze, you know, brazenly say it, didn't they? And it was, yeah, know, yeah. The three things why you were in a band. It's like, wow, yes, of course. I'd but, but it was, you know, it was principally music. That's why people did it, because it was such, it was a great adventure to sit around with people who became friends. And then, then you write these songs and you start gigging because there's so many gigs then. And then, um, 
and then things happen you know and you get in touch with others you start going on tour making records and that's so that's a an adventure and a dream but i coming back to um sex and drugs and rock and roll i think that the reason it isn't around anymore because they don't want it the media doesn't want it the media wants to play safe and control everything and that's what they've done they've replaced rock and roll with bake-off <laughs> 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 yeah, they're, God knows what they're playing. Yes, I know it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Really. So, look, I'm in my. I mean, this is brilliant. So, I'm in my um, yeah, sort of mid fifties now. I'm slightly over now. I'm still in denial, but um, you yeah. know, I sort of grew up in that sort of early. You know, that was the early seventies when I suddenly hit you know the top of the pops period and thought, wow, Gary yeah. Glitter, I want to be in his gang and the Swede and Mark Boland and. And luckily, my first single was David Bowie's Space Oddity. So what were your kind of those formative years where you suddenly got excited about something that your parents thought, really? That's terrible. Well, actually, the very first record, I thought this is incredible, that I heard on Radio 1, apart from all the 60s stuff, like the tremolos and the Beatles that my mum used to play on the radio, was um, was Bee Bumble and the Stingers, Nut Rocker, which my dad liked as well. So... It wasn't that I went off on a on a limb. I just thought that that song was so passionate and joyful. And then I heard Boland's Deborah in '72 re-released. Yes, I was 13 then, and uh, God, you know, I thought this is so so wonderful because there's hardly any instrumentation. There are keyboard that there is a guitar and percussion and vocals and and the vocal arrangement. And yet the, the the spirit of it is, and the texture was sublime, and that got me into T Rex, and I started. I bought the Electric Warrior, and then all the old albums, yes, the, the earlier albums, which I loved for their texture and their dreamy quality and poetry, so, and very. Yeah. it was just because I remember John Peel. Um, Obviously not then, but he used to do a show in the 60s, The Perfume Garden, didn't he? And he was very big on Mark Boland at that yeah, stage and yeah. was often playing Mark's poetry. And um, you can still hear it on some of those spot, some Spotify sort of albums of him sort of reading this out, which was just, it was just of its time. It was like the summer yeah. of love, wasn't it? Which was magic. Yep. We and <clears throat> I just thought it was, coming back to your earlier point as well, it was anarchic. You know, his words were coming from his imagination, and they they had an integrity uh, as they as he sang them. They didn't address the world in many ways, but they had that integrity, which made them really interesting and valuable. I think. Yeah. You know, they weren't they weren't poetry like Wordsworth and Coleridge and and others that he drew from or Tolkien. They were they were something else. But his spirit managed to weave that together in a, in a sublime texture, I think. And also, Bolan was quite interesting because he did have such a change of his style from that 60s period where it was very sort of, I suppose, folky and a bit sort of, um, yeah, cross-legged and, and sort of was definitely furrowing that element and then became this kind of a harder kind of rock sound or much more of a conventional rock sound, which is still stunning. But um, yes, it was it was yeah. quite something actually the Mark Boland period before he sort of became a little bit chubby and then went into that that program called Mark, didn't he? And started introducing us to early punk bands. Yeah, well, I I think that as a talking about Boland, as a young man, he'd achieved so much. You know, in '72, 
he was 23 or 24, and he'd had four number ones. And they were all coming out of his head like telegrams, Sam. You know, nobody else could have written that, or Metal Guru. And because Tony Visconti had been with him all the time, he knew what to accentuate, he knew what to bring out, and he knew the source of that, that passion as well. So that's what gave it that momentum. Yes, I do think um, Great Horse... Is it Great Horse or Great Horsey? That was such Great a... Great Horse. Brilliant song. Yeah. Stunning, actually. But it's interesting because, actually, he did that in the 60s and then obviously hit the commercial heights in the 70s, whereas that was with Tony Visconti, whereas someone like Nick Drake had uh, Joe Boyd and he never quite got from that kind of first bass, really, did he? I mean, his song, his stuff was amazing, but the frustration of everybody around Nick Drake was quite intense, I would imagine, as things didn't sort of at all... It didn't change. It was just like Nick was still not quite making yeah. much much headway, really. So, poor old boy. Oh, but, uh, the, I don't really know much about Nick Drake, but you could see that that he's a delicate soul and a sensitive person, and he wasn't driven by um by worldly ambition and and mark was mark bolin was was different he was really driven um i think from his from his cultural roots um to succeed on a level that could be recognized socially and culturally and and nick drake wasn't nick drake had a his internal life was was a was his um commune with the world yes as um it's strange, because Bowie and Bolin both sort of in the 60s were doing various things, but they, they, they were both so determined not to let it go and to do whatever it took to um, find that magic key to say, right, we have now become pop stars. That's you know, right. You know, it was quite yeah. interesting. And, I mean, yeah. Bowie worked... I mean, it was that kind of... His, you know, it was Angie and Tony DeFries that gave him such a sort of... Um, I suppose kind of the the kind of key to the or the code to the next part of his career because it really wasn't going very far and well in the sixties. I mean, when you listen to his sixties stuff, it was pretty awful, really. Yeah, and yeah. I'm a huge fan. But there you go. Look, so then, so when did you start thinking and get a guitar and and start writing songs? All right. So um, my uncle had my uncle Marek had a guitar at home, and I was always fascinated by it. I remember when I was about nine and ten, I started picking it up and trying to pay satisfaction near the riff to, to the Stones' satisfaction on it. And they, because he was ten years older than me, so he was of a different generation, and my other uncle, Jacek, and they used to play Hendrix and the, the Stones and the Doors, and later on, Mike Oldfield. But they are always into the, the kind of hardcore youth culture and that's that's what um drew me into it i think and then i just couldn't help it i wanted to play guitar and i i bugged my dad and um when i was 13 i just remember coming back from the guitar shop in ealing and it was on south ealing road with an amp and a, an electric guitar and i've still got that guitar actually and um, I started writing almost straight away because I'd, I'd been doing little bits of songwriting beforehand and I've never stopped. Yes. 
And then obviously, because the 70s were quite interesting, we had that, I mean, this is a very simplistic way of looking at it, but, you know, the 60s had had that kind of amazing period and then it kind of ended with lots of death, really, wasn't it? Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, you had Altamont. I mean, to be honest, yeah. Woodstock was a disaster, but it, it filmed really well. But I think it was anybody who went there, was it could have gone so badly if if they had been a bit more... Yes, if, if a few other things... You know, if they had had a slightly edgier crowd, it would have probably ended in mass mass death, I think, really. Because it was so badly run and, and yeah. put together, but like the film had been brilliant. And then you had that kind of the glam period, and then, you know, pub, pub rock, then a bit of heavy metal, then the prog rock period you know, with Yes, Genesis and Wishbone Ash, and then punk. So so obviously when you were hitting your A-levels, A-level period, your pre-Warwick, was that, um, yeah, were you still sort of forming bands at that stage or were you just still in your bedroom being a bit angsty? No, no. <laughs> I was. I, I had a band called Nuclear Pig and we used to play um, in the park in the summer we, there was a big festival in the park in Ealing. This was a long time before the jazz festivals. But um, myself and my friend Popkevich and Gary Marsh, we had a band going, and and um, people liked it. People liked it, and I part of a, I was part of the Polish community there in Ealing, and we used to play at their parties and discos, and uh, we started drawing quite a quite a crowd. So. It's always been in my blood, and I've, I've never stopped it. The first thing I did when I got to Warwick was um, I plugged in my amp and my guitar, and I started playing in my room before unpacking anything else. And I thought, this is what's going to see me through this place. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was, it was. And, and I was very lucky to meet the other guys in the VIPs because they had been looking for a guitarist. And whereas in some ways I was well in advance of them in terms of um, guitar playing and everything else, they were they were keen at, at at establishing a band and at gigging. And within three weeks of joining them, we were playing in clubs in Leicester and stuff like that. And and within about four months, we went up to Scotland and did a tour there, and um, got it got written up in the enemy, I think, at gig. And well, one of the gigs, and that that went really well. And then we recorded a single. We we did a talent contest at Warwick, and uh, Andrew Price sent it to Andrew Price, the bass player, sent it to John Peel, and he was playing it all the time. So things happened very quickly for us, and they happened quickly because there was so much going on in those days. You now you could get lots of gigs. You would meet other artists you'd be infused by what they were doing and everybody thought let's go for it and and the venues wanted it yes. you know, we were, we were, we were, the first few gigs we were playing we were playing alongside um, the specials because they were starting at the same time as well in Coventry yes. and other places like that because it was interesting because we had the I mean in those days and, be, and in the next decade probably into the 90s and then after that I have no idea what's going on but you had those kind of gatekeepers and like you said there was John Peel who was like wow you know a play on the John Peel show gave you kind of like listeners all over the country like me with my yeah. trusty TDK D90 cassette playing it uh, recording it 
home music is killing what's that home taping is killing music it wasn't really but you know what I mean you'd, you'd record yeah. the John Peel show because you needed to listen to it a few times to go right I'm vaguely understanding what this is all about because you know with daytime radio you just hear it even if you didn't want to whereas John Peel you had one shot at it and you didn't want to take the chance of him might playing it again you, you couldn't go to the internet and find out what he played on the, that night it was gone so I used to have to record a lot of his shows to listen to him a few times so, so he was so important and then you know the music papers like you said there was the enemy melody maker sounds record mirror with huge circulations and every little town and every big town city um you know had a normally had a venue with a kind of a indie night or even more slightly pretentious alternative night because they were yeah. we, we were alternative well, people they, they were they weren't these places a lot of them you know, there were thousands of them they weren't even clubs they were pubs that would put bands on and try to get other people in and and there were a lot, a lot of people coming out to see us the first place we played ever the vips was um was in leicester it's called scamps and we went on at about half past 12 at night which a lot of bands did <laughs> and and there were about eight people there in this club and two of them were lying on the ground yes <laughs> <laughs> And one of them was being sick, you know, so another five were hanging around the bar and looking up. And there we were delivering our, our punk, because we really were hardcore punk at the beginning. Uh, it, was, it was a dream come true. It was a dream, yeah, because Leicester had the Princess Charlotte, didn't they, in the 80s? I always remember John Peel used to... It was the Harlow Square, the Princess Charlotte, the Wild Club in Norwich you know, the Duke of York, I think, or Duchess of York in Leeds. I'll probably get them wrong. Anyway, you know, every like you said, every place had a venue and it wasn't it wasn't like an arts it wasn't a particularly art centre. It was it was probably on a Monday or Tuesday night when the landlord said do what you want, mate, because we don't get anyone here. Yeah. You know, you're not going to have Friday or Saturday, probably, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, fill your boots, have your alternative uh, night. Yeah, <laughs> there were there were other bands like the Killjoys with um, Kevin Rowland, who later went on. To, to create Dexys and Delight Runners. And we could see the energy in these people, you know, and people fed off each other's energy and joy. There was a Ricky Cool, I don't know if you've, he was doing the rounds and he was such a gifted person who never made it big time, but um, went on for many, many years. Ricky Cool and the Icebergs. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we gigged with so many people, yes. uh, with the Ruts, with the members, with madness and jilted john so the john four Otway. oh god john Otway, we love him wild willy Bad. Yeah. but yeah so you obviously you hit sort of a, a formula quite quickly you didn't struggle for that amount of time to create a sound that people wanted to hear in that way yes we're like well i think it's because i couldn't write it <laughs> couldn't write anything else and and people could identify with it because it was it was heavily influenced by what I was talking about earlier on, which was Bolan and rock and roll, and a, a bit of Polish stuff there as well that I uh, inherited from my background, and um, and I because I had been writing songs for a while. By the time I got to Warwick, I, I kind of knew how to do it, and and um, that's how it worked. Yeah, and it was interesting because you. It was, Sorry. I was going to say it's interesting because there was quite a because I grew up in East Anglia, and there was um, quite a Polish community, and it was because a lot of people came over in the Second World War. I mean, was that a similar kind of journey that your family had? Yeah, I've I've um, 
well, yes, like thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that that had to leave Poland after the war, couldn't go back because of, of the Russians coming in and taking over. My grandmother and mother and my grandmother's half-sister were sent to Siberia and they nearly starved to death. My grandfather was tortured for two years in Russian prisons. He was a, an artillery colonel. My father was in the Warsaw Uprising. You know, he, he witnessed the death of 230,000 people practically when he was about 21. So they, they'd suffered a lot and they came here alongside lots of other people to rebuild their lives. Yes. And, and so actually that, uh, there's another, I suppose, point that when I was growing up, access to music in our house wasn't, or pop music wasn't the most important thing because there was a, there was a, a heavy... Um, cloud of remembrance or influence from the war. Not that people weren't positive and loving, but that's what there was. And so for my parents and grandparents to relate to the pop scene was impossible, really. I know, because I can, I can remember various people's parents. They were just very serious and they worked so hard. But I now, well, not now, but I realised it was kind of their history and what they witnessed and knew what happened in their country kind of yeah. made, made you quite a serious person, really. It wasn't, it, it, there wasn't a lot of frivolity. There wasn't a sort of a dropping-out period in the 60s, smoking drugs, was there? It was like, you know, the, the, the memory of Stalin was probably too close to, uh, to drop one's guard, really. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were traumatised, most of those people, and we didn't use those, that term, you know, post-traumatic stress. But that's what a lot of them were suffering from. And it was, it was great in a way, to break out of that, even though the, the, the love and the, the, all the human substance was there. It was great to reach out and do something completely different with, um, with pop music. Yes. So they must have been incredibly pleased with you sort of getting to Warwick University and, and sort of, and then very confused when you were in a band. <laughs> well, sadly, both my parents died before I got there. Um, however... However, uh, I, I wanted at that stage in my life not so much to study but to do music and I was very lucky that I met the others because I dropped out after a year for rock and roll and we moved down to London, the VIPs, and uh, we started gigging regularly in Shepherd's Bush, in Islington, all around London. We built up a following, and that, that was something that I found personally really satisfying. And, um, and fortunately, you know, we, we had a, a decent manager, and, and we got a good record deal with, with Gem Records, with RCA, and, and we were played on the radio, and we went on big tours with Madness and Dexys Midnight Runners and other people. And that was such a huge adventure that that um, that was completely absorbing. Yes, well, absolutely. But then, I mean, because the, that that period was, you know, I mean, in a very simplistic way, you know, we'd had punk, and quite quickly, like with any scene, it gets a bit kind of like dreadful, and bands start becoming punk who aren't, and but wearing the clothes and looking stupid. Yeah. And then you had that post-punk period, and then. Then you sort of had the birth of kind of indie pop that started in the 80s with people like, I suppose, Simple Minds and Echo and the Bunnymen. But it was kind of 83 when the Smiths appeared. It was like, OK, this is definitely quite something. And um, so, yeah, and, and at that time, obviously, 
you know, a lot of people I've interviewed, I mean, they, they spent a few years, especially in the early 80s, un, you know, unemployed because there was like, it was almost a career move. You know, you <laughs> claimed unemployment benefit or job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes, be in the band at the same time. So you kind of got a, indirectly got a grant. So how was it for the band? Because, you know, during that period, you know, you went from sort of 78 to sort of 81 and then, then it kind of folded. I just wonder what the narrative was. Well, like like you're saying, it, it was tough for everyone at the beginning. Um, we were when we came down in '78. We were rehearsing in in Wandsworth and in Battersea. And in Battersea, we were paying four pounds for four hours. You know, one pound an hour for rehearsal studios because we couldn't afford anything else. And we were eating biscuits for lunch and crisps because we couldn't afford anything else. So we didn't weigh much. Yes. <laughs> That's what, when you look at pictures, everyone looks so waif-like, don't they? Yeah, yeah. But then, once, once it all got going, once we got the first records out and people knew our name, then there was that feedback, and that, that sustains you. And, and um, my brother's band, the Blue Aeroplanes, they, they started getting a name for themselves and making records. So it, it seemed quite natural. And we, we got, a, as I said, a very good deal with um, Gem Records, and and we ended up using very very nice and plush studios with uh, with known producers like Bob Sargent and um, Mike Leander. So it was as though the whole kind of road that one was meant to take was um, that you know we we were there on it and we we kind of saw it through. And then we were meant to go on top of the pops with our single uh, The Quarter Moon, which was which was being played all the time on the BBC and all around the country. And, um, and they had a, a scene shifter strike at the BBC. And we didn't go on top of the pops. And um, that was difficult for us because the next single wasn't as well received. Yes. I I need to, yeah. And, and why, why things stopped was that I, I became quite ill. My lung was collapsed a few times because of the stress of of what I mentioned earlier on in my life and the stress of constant touring and, and not feeding properly not eating properly so I decided for my own sanity and, and physical safety to, to give it a break for a while. Blimey, that must have been a tough decision It was, it was because we, were, we became brothers as, as all bands do you know, you, we we gave each other a lot. Paul, Andy, and Guy, and myself, um, we went through so much together and achieved a great deal in a short space of time. And then um, I couldn't really, I couldn't do it anymore for for those reasons, for health reasons. Blimey! Yeah, no, that's always quite. And did and did the by then did the band sort of had that sort of moved on, so to speak? That um, you know, obviously when. You're young, and they've probably finished their courses or you know degrees, and thinking, actually, I need to. I'm now almost 25. I might as well do something else. Did it? Did the momentum go, and and you know everyone just have to sort of find their own new path? Well, it, it wasn't like that actually, because we were all passionate about music. The only person that quit then was Andy, the bass player, because he he didn't want to live that life anymore. But Paul, the drummer, and Guy, the guitarist and songwriter, singer, um, they formed a new band called Mood Six with some guys um, with 
from bands, I think at the Merton Park, as they were called, yeah. And they got a deal with EMI and um, released a couple of singles. And I myself um, got in touch with Dan Tracy, who had become a friend over the years in South East London, Clapham, where we lived, and, and put an album out with him, which was very kind of him. Yes. And the, and the, the response to that, the, the critical response was really, really good. So I'm, I'm proud of that, and I'm really glad I did it. And I'm still writing. I released an album three, no, five years ago by my contemporary band, Tranquilizers, and I'm recording another album now and releasing a single soon. Yeah, so with your Stallions of the Heart, the solo album, um, with on Dan Tracy's famous, is it Wah Records? Wham. Wham, Wham Records. God, why did I say Wah? I don't know. Um, so um, I think that was Pete Wiley, wasn't it? But yeah, so did, um, yeah, so I was listening to that this morning because to be honest, I hadn't. So Golly Josh. Golly gosh. Golly gosh. Golly gosh. Yeah. yeah. That was quite punky. <laughs> that was very, um, lyrically, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I read a, an interview once with John Lennon, and he, he said in this interview that, um, that he wasn't honest enough in his songs initially about love and about himself and things like that. So um, I read that when I was still in the VIPs, that's all, maybe just afterwards. And, um, and I thought, all right, I'll be honest about how love makes me feel. You know, it makes me feel scared. <laughs> when you're in love with somebody, you think, Jesus Christ, yeah. this matters. It's all, and it's all going to end in tears. But it, it doesn't <laughs> always, but, you know. No, not at all, but it's, it's a big deal. And, and hence the lyrics, and the, for any of your listeners... The, the golly gosh isn't actually the phrase used. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I just realised a lot. Oh yeah, that's um, that's quite interesting. So then, I mean, obviously things happen, and you realise that a music's great fun, and it's all very interesting, but it doesn't kind of often pay the bills. So did you then have to do that great thing of juggling different activities to make some money at the same time as play music as more of a sideline? Yeah, yeah, but I, I wanted, I needed to, to treat myself physically well, so I started working as a, as a roofer and a labourer to get my strength up, and it worked, it worked, it brought me peace of mind and, and fitness and strength, so um, I was pleased about that, but then, as you're saying, you know, time moves on, and I, I fell in love, and I wanted to have a family, and I thought, I can't not pay for that family. And I went back to university and did a finished my degree at Goldsmiths. Yes. Worked all the time doing music, and, and then, shock horror of horrors, I became a teacher <laughs> <laughs> of English. And I'm, you know, I love literature, and so I was lucky in that I could be in touch with what I loved as well as music so. well I suppose I mean you know like people like Pete I mean it's quite a lot of people who become teachers you know, it's not you know it's quite it's not that surprising because most people think oh crikey okay I'll do the teacher training course I actually I've got a job I've yeah you know it's, it's yeah yeah and, it's, and and it's paid for you know it's paid for raising a family and that's a good thing Absolutely. Rather than thinking, oh no, I wish I had another deal, and when's my next record coming out? And 
poor me, poor me, and I didn't want to go anywhere near that road. Yeah, well, I also, because you were saying about being on top of the pops or not being on top of the pops, a lot of people have mentioned timing, and it's been kind of interesting because sometimes people have been like, we were lucky because we were at the right place at the right time. Other people weren't quite so lucky, and so they kind of missed that moment. And there's a few people from especially 80s, and these are people who kind of were more mainstream chart success stories that, you know... Yeah, yeah. Who, who you know, did that massive moment, you know, like they got it, they got the top of the pops, they got in the top ten, probably top five, and then the sort of next album comes out, and there's a bit of a muck-up at the record label, they don't get the single out, the single doesn't quite chart, and basically the record company just goes, right, that's it, forget, them, forget it, you know, that's that's their career over, and they're kind of kind of in shock you know I think they're like wait you know we've got the album you know just because you've made up you made a mistake somewhere down the line and the single you know the single didn't chart what about the next single it's like yeah too late we've moved on now and it's you're not being able to get the album out when you want it because the record label's got issues and stuff like that so it is kind of littered with those kind of stories as well which is um, why you probably don't want to rely on it to I mean it's okay when you're young but you don't really want to have other people relying on your income as a singer-songwriter touring the country and getting home at four in the morning trying to get the get the amp up the stairs without groaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that sounds very familiar that's why I laugh heartily because that's what was happening. You know, we'd come back, not not after, but during the VIPs and stuff, we'd come back at three or four o'clock at night and the amp was there. And it was very, very funny. Once we came back from that tour in Scotland and my my room at Warwick University was on the ground floor and the the, uh, the, the big window through which we passed all the equipment, because I used to store about five amps in my bedroom <laughs> and, and speaker cabinets and everything else, it got jammed, so... <laughs> So this glass shattered, and <laughs> we passed all the stuff in through the open window. Yes, and I could. And um, and when they fixed that window, uh, about three nights later, somebody else came round and tried to open it and smashed it again. So. Oh my God! Anyway, that was rock and roll. That was rock and roll until you had to deal with the maintenance men and women, mostly men, and in those days, and they probably weren't smiling. They were probably moaning, weren't they? They were actually very nice. They didn't even say anything about it. They just changed it all. Oh, that's good of them. That's, that's, about it. Yeah. that's normally... God, you must have had good maintenance people in those days because, frankly, now it's like, oh, forget it. But but then, you know, years, decades later, you know, because often I've noticed that passing of time makes people sometimes reflect back or have the opportunity because, you know, they can... I don't know, they're suddenly... We're in lockdown. Loads of people are looking through memorabilia. But this isn't to do with that that story because a lot of people are doing that, aren't they? Let's face it, it's the, the websites are... The, Facebook is filled with people who have been going through their memorabilia, putting up pictures of gigs and uh, tour posters. But but people have been releasing, re-releasing albums. And you, you've also had this experience, haven't you? Well, that's it's a real joy, actually, because um, they are album the best of the vips came out in the 90s and i didn't know anything about the preparation for that um and it's a lovely piece of vinyl very beautifully packaged on tangerine records initially as a cd and uh, now optic nerve records have uh, picked it up and and are repackaging it very beautifully and i'm in touch with the main man there Ian Alcock, who's a, a gifted and enterprising and jolly person, and um, it's coming out at the end of October, um, 
and on on a fantastic colour vinyl. I won't say what the colour is, but it's a gatefold sleeve, lots of lyrics, lots of unseen pictures. So it's a it's a tribute to the I think care and the the joy that we had earlier on in those years. Yes, and it was also because I've I've noticed with all their releases or basically his releases, they always come with good. Um, Sleeve notes, don't they? We love sleeve notes, don't we? Let's face it. Yeah. And do you have have you got some lyrics, posters, everything that, yeah. that the fan needs? <laughs> I think that that's it's it's all there. There's a poster. There's pictures. There's the sleeves. There's the lyrics. Sorry, not the sleeves, but the lyrics on the sleeve. Um, everything is there. Yes. And, and it's all kind of it, it's all in in the type of um, very positive and jolly young fun thing that we were doing at the time. Yeah, it's nice. So basically, yeah, because it's 17 tracks, isn't it? So you've got your the catalogue, haven't you? You're going to yeah. archive this forever and ever. I mean, one of the things that's quite interesting, and I notice you've got a bit of a connection to this, and it's one of the great rock and roll mysteries of our time, is um, yes, royalties and stuff like that, which obviously in indie pop world is like, no, you know, it doesn't really exist. But then you have people, and it was one of those things, and you might say, let's not talk about this, but because isn't there a mystery with Mark Bonin's royalties that no one knows where they all went? Or is that just one of those? Um... Well, I, yeah, I've, I've been working with Gloria Jones now for 10 years. Because I went, I went to this. Um, just give a bit of background here. I went to um, a commemorative ceremony uh, of Bolin's death in Golders Green, where he was cremated, where they, um, where that took place. And uh, she asked me because I, I sang a couple of Bolin songs and um, I said I, I was a teacher. So she asked me to help her start the Mark Bolin School of Music and Film in Sierra Leone. And I knew nothing about that initiating or, or directing anything. But I went out to Sierra Leone and I saw how dreadfully destitute people were. Uh, it's, it's sickening, the poverty out there, actually. And how very, very nice the people were as well. And so I, I started um, working with her. And she's told me loads of stories about Mark, about how he came up with ideas you know, all those different things. And because I'm involved in in that school and I'm the director of the charity raising funds for it, I've also learned about his his background in business a little bit, not much. And um and there are a few people who, who know where that money went, who didn't want to share it, who didn't think actually this doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the person or the family of the person who created these things. And um, you can't get very far with them. But I know that Roland has, um, Roland Boland, Mark's son, has um, made some progress there in America with that. I know that, that Gloria um, Jones, the Motown singer-songwriter and, and Boland's partner, she's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal person who has practically received nothing ever from, um, from Mark's uh, writing from those royalties. But she's out there helping these destitute children um, become musicians, become proud of themselves. Yes. And we've just, we've just now, sorry, we've just, uh, com- they've just completed another video, which is a public awareness video, teaching the country how to stay distant or how to manage 
behavior with COVID around. And it's, it's glorious because we've got these kids who are about five, six years old and they have, have dressed up, they've learnt their dance steps, you know, somebody's choreographed them. We now have people at our school who have learnt to direct, who have learnt to make film, and um, they've made a beautiful video which came out about two days ago. And the, the previous video was played on Sierra Leonean national TV for weeks on end. So that that's... I'm, I'm so honored to be part of that legacy of Marx. I, that's what I know is, um, is, is a form of his influence and spirit that is really substantial and matters. As for the money, I don't know what's happened to that. And I don't think um, anyone apart from a few people do. Yeah, no, it's kind of one of those kind of weird mysteries that when you... Because let's face it, we love our sort of Friday night, or we used to, you know, BBC Four on a Friday, yeah, rock yeah. documentaries, and there was just, I don't know if there, if there was a mention of some, you know, it's never, it's like there must be millions, but no, you know, someone just must, must be getting all of it, and and, and no one can say, say where, so it was like... Well, it, it's most probably the, the publishing company who collect these things are owned by somebody bigger, some corporation who who really don't care. No. They don't operate on a moral level whatsoever or a human level and and want to keep it just as it is, which is a great shame. I know, because Mark's kind of, you know, music and his kind of success, especially in that early 70s period, you know, was just phenomenal. So you just thought, oh, that's... And then obviously, I mean, his music's used all the time in soundtracks and films and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. It, it is quite boggling, really, his, the influence. But it's an incredible story that you've... Yeah, the official Mark Boland um, School of Dance. Music, not dance. School of Music and Film. Film, yeah. Uh, and Gloria's out there. And, and, you know, she's had... She's... I just want to big her up because she's amazing. She's had malaria twice. She didn't want to... Um, bad, bad bouts of malaria. She didn't want to leave during the Ebola crisis. I had to beg her to leave Sierra Leone so because that's a nasty thing. Um, and she's dedicated the last 12 years of her life to helping kids with, with very positive human results. Amazing, yes. It makes you feel quite sort of... Um Blimey, humble, really, doesn't it? Jeezy crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing in the world because, well, I don't, let's not go into politics. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go to politics. But they're making music, and music is what creates you know, cooperation and joy. And as you were saying just now, 40 years on, or 46 years on, Boland's songs are being played on the radio and on TV all the time. And it's something that inspires and and creates a real joy. So that's that's what we want for those kids. Yeah, absolutely. That. And there you go. And she tainted love, indeed. Yep, yep, that's Class what she did. Classic, wasn't it? So look, I mean, what would you... I mean, sort of jump in here. Um, I mean, if you could say something to your an 18-year-old self who was starting out in that kind of interest and world that is kind of music and creativity, I mean... If there's, you know, a couple of things you've learned over the decades, I mean, I just wonder what you'd, you would just kind of say, oh, by the way, just give you a bit of advice, mate. Here you go. <laughs> um, it will be difficult, but because, because what happened to the VIPs happened at a critical time and I couldn't physically do anything about it, 
I would, if if I hadn't, you know, if my lung hadn't started collapsing, which it did quite a few times, then I would have stuck at at the VIPs, and I would have, you know, we would have made more headway. Then videos would have, well, did start very soon after that, and we would have created some videos, and our career would have would have um, developed very positively. At, at the same time, though. You know, stardom is a fickle thing, and and life itself, and being able to live and love and have friendships, and everything else is is very substantial. So, that that's a balance to be made. Yes. You know, appreciation of that, and and to have somebody recognise you all the time, and this and that, and and know everything or want to know what you're doing just so that they can sell it is also, um, I think, an unpleasant inconvenience. So I would, I would have said to myself, stick at it, stick at it, because I, I play guitar every day, I write songs every day, and that's, that's what gives me real joy at the end of the day. And working with other musicians, making these records and, and performing live. Yeah. And would you... I mean, with with sort of this kind of you had you said you had the compilation, but this is a a kind of even more sexy compilation coming out. I mean, has that meant that the band? I'm not saying you can reform, but do you you know is it the case that you've you've had a sort of opportunity to sort of kind of reconnect, so to speak? Well, we've we've not really lost touch. Every you know, few years, every couple of years, I speak to Guy and and um, and Andrew. The the sad um, tragedy is that Paul, the drummer, died um, a few years ago, and you know, greatly missed. He was the one who put the band together. He was the one at Warwick who was head of the kind of alternative entertainments, who got us gigs to put us on tour initially. He's the one um, whose work the the, the new repackaging of the album um, whose work it's based on he's a very talented man so it, there's no chance of us getting back together no. without his presence but it must be quite nice to be able to um, not just sort of catch up and say how you doing but to say look we've got this project this is going to yeah, come out it is. it is absolutely and, and I'm in touch with, um, with Paul's daughter who's a, a designer um, and a fashion designer, and she's doing wonderful things, and she's thrilled about it. And I've also been constantly in touch with our old, um, <clears throat> our old roadies, and they're they're looking forward to it as well. And there are lots of people from those days who still keep in touch, who ask me, funnily enough, to sign records for them and things like that. <laughs> so it's, it's very pleasant. Yes, no, it must be <laughs> it's fantastic. It's happening on a very pleasant scale, yeah. Yes, and uh, and hopefully we'll, the end of the year might sort of pick up a little bit more when, when it comes out. So it'll be fantastic. And um, yeah. yeah, it's great that Optic Nerve have uh, put this together for you, which is going to be very exciting. So is it, it is. Just, just lastly, yeah. is it coming out on just vinyl or are you going to get CDs as well? Initially, it's going to be vinyl. Well, that's that's the project, and I don't know about Ian Optic Nerve's um, plans, but that's what's going to happen. So it's it's a it's a presentational thing, yeah. as well as a celebration of the music, which has actually been remastered, um, and so it sounds deeper and brighter and and more modern than it did without losing its warmth. 
on vinyl. Yeah. God, that's going to be very... God, can you believe it? Vinyl's come back. It's back. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I know. It's actually... It's kind of now, like you said, it's kind of art, isn't it? You know, the, that actual object is more yeah. than just the music. It's kind of everything that you, you know, remember and think, oh, this is a beautiful thing to hold and... Uh, and to, without sounding weird, but sniff. Because when you've got a new album, it always smelt beautiful until... Yeah. Yeah. There's something yeah, and that, that, that fresh cardboard or paper. Not a scratch the, in sight. <laughs> yeah, the image and the, and the shiny surface of the vinyl itself. All yes. of it is a, it's a ritual, I suppose. I don't want to encourage it at all. It's like rolling a cigarette, and I haven't smoked for 20 years, but... You know, it's, it's not just the action itself, it's the ritual around that action, around listening to something. Absolutely. And uh, enjoying it all. Well, this is going to be an exciting thing for the autumn. This is Yeah, and I'm, I'm really thrilled that it's happening, and uh, it encourages me to carry on yes. doing what I'm doing. And I, I still sing those VIP songs, and I play them on guitar, and they're, they're just as vibrant now as they were then, so it's a very happy thing to have happened. Yes, it does sound like a some of without sounding too new agey. It does sound like a some sort of holistic experience. It is. It's a, nice, it's a nice polishing up of aspects of life. Yeah, tying it together and then yeah. hopefully feeling good about it. I think that's the main thing, isn't it? As you get older, you think I'm feeling good about this now. I can move on even more. Even if you yeah. weren't stuck, well, it doesn't matter. But look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much. And and uh, when I get this and put this together, I'll I'll send you a link, and then you can put it on whatever social media platforms that you use, as we all do. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it's been great. And thank you ever so much for giving me the time because it's you know much appreciated. And obviously, um, it's funny because because I've got quite, it's over the years I've built up quite a following. Really, and and bizarrely, Alan McGee is really obsessed with this show. He he listens to them all, and he kind of often gets back in touch, and says, "Oh yes, I just listened to that." So it'll be, and he loves the fact that there's so so many obscure ones. I think that's the thing that a lot of people quite enjoy, and yeah. and I yeah. can see from my because I put them on Podbean, you know, the people who who listen to them all over the over the world now. So it's quite quite amusing yeah. really it's um yeah and you can see why he does that because he's looking out for new stuff all the time <laughs> he's, he's, he's interested in it he's interested in in that creative initial process yeah That's i think he, something else. he loves the story you know he loves the kind of because i did an actually this morning i did an interview with um a member of the triffids who, who i was very excited by because i love the triffids yeah. from australia and uh, yeah it's it's just interesting how it's an interesting, yeah, being in a band, it's um, it's both, there are worse things to do, but it's not easy, is it? It's not easy, but it's so rewarding. You know, if I'd, if, if anybody doesn't do it in their 20s, then they they don't have that to look back on, depending how long their career lasts and what else they're doing. Yes. And it, it's a thrill, you know, it's a real thrill for me to to know that people are still playing my stuff 40 years on, even though we didn't make it hugely big we made it just big enough we're known just enough to to have lasted and that that's a that's a nice compliment it's brilliant i know it's fantastic and and you'll you'll probably get some new fans or new followers and yay and yeah well it would be lovely to you know it's the it's the archive and the, and the legacy i mean obviously it would be just nice if you think actually there must be there's probably somebody every day somebody around the world who's going to be listening to one of those records yeah, well, there are. There are people in, in uh, who've been in touch from Russia, from California, 
from loads of places, from Germany. From uh, There's a guy in, I've met, and so there must be more in Japan, who's got all my records. So it's a nice, it's a nice kind of feeling of, of appreciation, of quiet appreciation. And, yes, absolutely. And value. And well, <clears throat> if I can just say, although I, you know this isn't perhaps relevant to what you're doing, I'm, I'm now I know that I'm now performing better and writing better than I ever have done in my life. So, so to get this feedback from Alan from Optic Nerve Records is is really encouraging. Yes, absolutely. And then you sort of realise this. No one said you need to stop when you get to a certain age. You can just continue, yeah. and yeah. Um, and have the faith and have the kind of. Or, yeah, I think it's a little bit different now because we've still got these people like, you know, unbelievably, you know, the Rolling Stones and Iggy Pop. So you kind of think, oh, right. Because when we were younger in the 70s, you didn't think anyone would be still doing it. But then you realise actually it doesn't stop, does it? And and there's no reason not to. Because all those, a lot of the bands from that period, the 80s, I mean, they did sometimes stop to, you know, do other things and work and stuff. But, you know, a lot of people have come back and are playing the odd little gig here and there and releasing the odd album and you know everyone is happy you know I was talking to Amelia Fletcher who was in Tallulah Gosh and then Heavenly and then lots of other bands and she's now got a new kind of musical project and she does that in the evening while her day job during the day so um yeah yeah I think you're you're I was thinking on exactly the same lines about the Rolling Stones and other bands who didn't stop because they one they weren't forced to stop economically and they created the, the cultural climate through their own momentum to, to be able to continue. Yes. And that's, that's been a, a real joy. And I think a lot of punk did that as well. You know, we were, who, who was it? The, we were stable mates with um, a hardcore punk band at Gem Records. I mean, their name's just escaped me, I'm sorry. But... Um, uh, you know, they didn't stop. They don't want to stop. They, it, it's so integral. It's so much part of the creative spirit and joy of life that you go out there and you do it. You don't think, oh, my God, what, what, what are the returns on this? Yes. It's not like that. It's not about that. I think the band that you're talking about is the UK Subs, isn't it? Yes, it is. Roy Harper. Right. It wasn't Roy Harper. It was somebody else, Harper. Charlie Harper. Charlie Harper, yeah. And and we all had a big laugh there. Yes. You know, there it you was go. great. It was great. And it it's it's anarchy as well. Punk was about anarchy. Punk was about um, stuff you <laughs> <laughs> rather than f you. It was stuff you. This is great. <laughs> you know, this is great. There's no reason for it, but God, do we love it. And that was me. It definitely was me. In conversation with a member of the VIPs, that's Jed Mahovsky talking about life. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And all these shows have been archived. And you, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, massive thanks to that uh, interview. Um, and I'll just leave you with these kind words. Have a great week. Stay safe.